drive, and I'm sure, in fact, I know you've been quite generous with regard to that for the month of May. Always a blessing to collaborate with the Salvation Army. I forgot my contact. I have a monocle, one contact I wear. I forgot it today. But I can see Professor Sadar and Mrs. Sadar. He's trying to hide, but I see you both. I see the will of God up there in the right corner. I see Pammy concentrating in the center. I see Colonel Afolder. It's Colonel now, right? Colonel Afolder. I see our, yeah, that's one of the many things your dad did right was bring you up. I see ambassadors from the state of Ohio over here, our Ohio ambassage. I can't see the front row, so I really can't see my, I, no, I can see Joe, Irene, Don, Carla. Yeah, I got you. I know my sheep by name, most of them, if not by name, by face. This week is going to be a full boat. We're going to be teaching on both Wednesday and Thursday. Next, the week after this, will be just Wednesday. We're going to experiment through the summer by just doing every other Thursday. See what happens to attendance. And we'll see. Today, another three hours have come into focus. Remembrance. Recapitulation. And regeneration, remembrance, recapitulation, a word made famous in Ephesians 1.10, the recapitulation of all things in Christ, and regeneration, both a universal phenomenon yet to occur and an individual, radically individual Phenomenon that happens in the case of each and every person. Tomorrow is an American holiday. And on what we call Memorial Day, it is an honorable thing to remember and to reflect gratefully upon those who died on battlefields here at home, and in distant lands, seas, and skies. We remember and reflect because battling our national enemies, they died for us. To secure or to defend our liberties as a client nation, as a nation of God, rather, whom God graciously willed to exist, and this is perspective, God graciously willed this nation, the United States of America, to exist and to thrive in civil freedom for a season. At the close of this evil age, where we stand right now, And so we remember and reflect. But we also must recognize that God graciously willed this nation to exist and to thrive in civil freedom for a season. We must not make the error that Rome made calling itself the eternal city. For here we have no continuing city. No empire on this earth has ever existed eternally there's only one eternal kingdom it is the kingdom of God and nobody even sees it without being born from above by an act of God and so it's become impossible for me to reflect and I do on this sacred national holiday but it's impossible for me to reflect in such a way without my thoughts flying from these heroic men and women to Jesus. 
just as our attention is drawn from the faith heroes in Hebrews 11 to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith in Hebrews 12. So there's a duly appointed time to remember the heroes of faith and the heroes who died for our civil freedom. But it is always, and without exception, proper and right for our thoughts to be drawn up and away to God who demonstrated his love in Christ's death for the ungodly, for people controlled by the foreign power of sin, for his enemies, for us, all of humanity in all of its times. As Romans 5, 6 through 11 says, for while we were still helpless, that's we, all of humanity in all of its times in Adam. At the appointed moment, the crucifixion, cross, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. This is what we celebrate on Memorial Day. Rarely, and it is a rare and honorable thing. And though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. That's the kind of thing we celebrate on those who have died on, for our freedom. But God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, still under radical control of the sin, the power of sin, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have now been justified by his blood, not our faith, his blood. We will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? He who died arose. And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, you may object and say that for us to allow our thoughts to soar so quickly to such a foreign kind of love that did not die fighting its enemies but died for its enemies, you may say that it's unpatriotic. Or you may think it does a disservice to those men and women whose service for our country and its citizens led to death by our enemies to so quickly give your praise to a love that died for its enemies. But I say that if you were to ask those who died in service for your freedom should we do this? They would reply, oh, yes. Do, please do. Turn your attention to this incomparable love, for we were all his enemies. And he has saved us all from wrath. Jesus Christ's blood has justified us all. Never, never, I think they'd say, remember us alone. But please allow your remembrance and reflection to turn to Jesus. And so we will. That's remembrance. Now recapitulation. On a lighter note, 
I was thinking this week, and I've been holding on to this thought now for several months. Those are when you let the messages incubate. Many of you can recall the author of the James Bond novels. His name was Ian Fleming. Well, this stage of my message I'm going to call me and Fleming because I'm speaking of me and Fleming Rutledge and something she wrote in her book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus. In her book, Fleming Rutledge quoted J.N.D. Kelly, my favorite Atheist slash naturalist brain surgeon cousin Greg gave me this book. Little did he know I'd be using it so much. His book called Early Christian Doctrines. When I read it, there was a paragraph that slapped me upside the head. And I wrote it down. And I was amazed to find the first shock was I found in Fleming Rutledge's book the same paragraph quoted but a second more powerful jolt came to me when she amended that paragraph by taking out three words striking them out she called it eliding them or I'll say striking them out and they were the same three words that I struck out of the quote by J.N.D. Kelly so that was a second jolt so me and Fleming She might not like the idea that I agree with her, but please indulge me. We do agree on this one thing, Ms. Rutledge. So she did this in order to make it amenable to Paul's gospel. She took out the parts she didn't think Paul would agree with. So I recalled with perfect clarity, when I remember paragraphs like this, I remember them forever. And when I remember knocking out a few words, I remember that forever. So I made the same change in my mind by striking out, she calls it a fancy word, eliding, E-L-I-D-I-N-G, the same words that she did when I read the paragraph. So I want to start by saying, first, I'll include the quote from J.N.D. Kelly, an excellent book, by the way, Early Christian Doctrines, underlining, and I'm going to underline or emphasize the eliminated words, and then I'm going to quote Fleming Rutledge's note where she explained why she knocked out a few words. My intention in doing this is simply to allow the light that was on in Paul when he wrote Romans to shine on us again. So here's the paragraph as it appears in early Christian doctrines. It says this, running through almost all the patristic attempts, that's the church fathers, to explain the redemption, there is one great theme which provides the clue to the father's understanding of the work of Christ. This is the ancient idea of recapitulation. We know it as anakephaliosis in Ephesians 1.10, the Greek, which Irenaeus derived from St. Paul, presenting Christ as the representative of the entire race. Just as all men were somehow present in Adam, so they are or can be, he said, present in the second Adam, or can be, is struck out. Are is left. So they are in the second Adam. The man from heaven. Just as they were involved in the former's sin, with all its appalling consequences, so they can participate in the latter's death and ultimate triumph over sin, the forces of evil and death itself. Because very God as he is, he has identified himself with the human race. Christ has been able to act on its behalf and in its stead 
And the victory he has obtained is the victory of all who belong to him. Please notice that he said we can be present in the second Adam. And of course, this goes to the idea if we do something about it. If we believe, if we confess, if we submit to baptism, or if you're a legalistic Jewish Christian, if we can submit to circumcision, follow the laws and observances of Moses, etc. That's what's implied there. And that's what you read into all of these theologies of faith rather than theologies of grace. And then, as he said, they can participate in the latter's death. They can. So here's Fleming. And she replaces the can be with are and eliminates the second can altogether. She doesn't kick this can down the road and let it remain. She elides or strikes it out altogether. So she also emphasizes with italic font the word recapitulation, representative, and participate. She explains the reason for her elision in the phrase can be in the second can in her footnote. And this is the explanation that gave me such a pleasant jolt. She said the elided or admitted words in Kelly's are or can be and can. This runs counter to Paul who does not use that sort of possibility language. All men are present in the second Adam, period. Their ultimate destiny is in the hands of God. When Paul is in his most expansive mode, as for instance in, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two. he does not qualify Pontes, which means all without exception. He does not qualify this Greek word, Pontes. So we could say, me and Paul and Fleming. Pontes. He does not qualify it into a possibility, the possibility of being in Christ. Paul doesn't use possibility language. He does not say, she says, can be made alive. Then she says, see also Romans eleven twenty six: All Israel shall be saved, will be saved, and especially, and I love this, she actually says, and especially 1132 of Romans. God has consigned all men to disobedience that he might have mercy on all, that he may have mercy upon all. So in this instance, and I'll have to say in many others, me and Fleming could not agree more. Recapitulation is a word that appears in Ephesians 1.10. We're going to look at this also in Romans 13.9. The only two times it appears in all the Old, Test- Old and New Testament, the New Testament is in Paul, Ephesians 1, in his first epistle, and Romans 13 in his last epistle. And it's the Greek word anakephaleao, as we've seen before. Anakephaleao. Long word, important though. You have to use long words if you're going to explain all the doctrines of Paul. Looks like this in the Greek. A-N-A-K-E-P-H-A-L-A-I-O. Make that omicron O. Omega O. Anakephaleao. Right in the middle you have kephale for head. Bringing everything under the headship of Christ is God's plan. Anakephaleao. It's often used in Greek literature as a rhetorical term for summary or a concise review where the argument is presented and then the person says, let me summarize by reviewing the facts and summarizing them briefly. Now, in biogenetic theory, and I say theory, biogenetic theory, 
The word recapitulation is used in a special way. And according to that theory, the evolutionary stages of a species, that's a general species, appears to repeat during the embryonic development of the individual organism. So I'm only using this for an analogy. It's a theory. It's not reality. I'm going to use it as an analogy to reality. So you see the development in the species in the embryonic development until birth. And that's supposed to reveal the stages of the evolution of that entire species. The only reason I'm using that biogenetic theory of recapitulation is to make an analogy to what I'm going to talk about next, regeneration. Recapitulation. Regeneration. And so there's an important analogy here to the individual in Christ whose Christian spiritual life is not an imitation but an outworking of God's recapitulation and of Christ's recapitulation of the life in Adam. So in the gospel, in the mystery of the gospel, in the gospel that is the mystery of Christ, there is the universal horizon called recapitulation. But then there are individual instances, and again, I hate to use big words, but I have to here, instantiation, instantiation. I'm going to probably write this down because I think this is going to figure prominently into our theological development of Romans. Instantiation, or we could say that the making of an instance or the, the representation of something, an instance of something happened, instantiation. Your personal regeneration or being born from above is an instantiation of the universal recapitulation. And we make that analogous to a whole general species And then the individual organism in its embryonic development seems to, according to theory, I'm not saying this is the case, I'm saying this is the theory of biogenetics. As you trace the stages of the individual embryonic development of of an organism, it's supposed to, according to this theory, represent the evolutionary development of the entire species. Again, my analogy is this. Theological recapitulation, not a theory but a reality, means that your individual regeneration, an act of God bringing you into Christ and making you alive in Christ, is an individual representation of what God is doing in all the universe and all of his creation, making it alive because of Christ's resurrection. So in biogenetic theory, it means the evolutionary stages of a species appear to repeat during the embryonic development of the individual organism. But the analogy is this, that in theology or in biblical reality, each individual's regeneration is an outworking of the universal recapitulation that was accomplished at Calvary. And that will be universally manifested in the pan-human bodily resurrection. When all humanity bodily raised. And in the liberation of all creation in all of its times. From its slavery to corruption and mortality. So as biogenetic recapitulation applies to a species. And to individual embryonic development. Notice the generality, the species, and the individuality of the individual organism. So in biblical theology, recapitulation applies to universal restoration or regeneration, as Jesus called it, and to individual regeneration, not in theory, but in reality. The embryonic development of an individual organism is a not a matter of its will. 
The embryon, embryonic organism doesn't say, I think I'll develop. And I think at the close of my development, I, I will live. It is not a matter of its will or its intention. And the evolutionary theorist probably won't tell you this, but I will. But it's of the will and intention of the creator that that individual organism exist and live. Whether if it's a flower, a bee, a robin, a baby. Likewise, each act of regeneration or enactment of birth from above, and that's what regeneration is, the new birth, every act of regeneration or birth from above is neither a result of human will. Neither is that a result of human will. Did you will to be born? And what makes you think that you willed to be born again? What people don't like to recognize, and this gets right to the heart of the heart of the matter, because what people don't like to recognize, and the reason they don't like to recognize it is because this is the last citadel of their arrogance. They want their will to be involved. So they can say, I beat sin. Right. Or I'm going to heaven because I. So, as in the act of the embryonic development of any organism to life, Each act of regeneration or enactment of birth from above is not a result of human will, but of the invasion of the human will by the irresistible grace and power of God's love, which is unrestricted and irresistible, universal and individual. Now, what I'm saying today can be fanned out into a semester at Theological Seminary, so I'm trying to get these things done quietly and thoroughly, slowly. It is not on the basis of deeds that we have done. Let me get downright biblical. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing or the bath of regeneration. I like the word regeneration because it means, let me just do the English transliteration, pollen, that means again, Plus, Genesea, which means Genesis. And again, Genesis. In the beginning, God created. Where were you? God created everything in the beginning because I willed him to do so. Or God already planned to do it, and so he wouldn't have done it if I hadn't permitted him to do so because he's a gentleman. No. In the beginning, God created, and in the end of human history, God creates a new creation by his own will. Pollen plus Genesea is used by Jesus in Matthew 19, 28. When the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, and everybody sees it, in other words, we see the king When you see the kingdom of God, you see the king high and lifted up on his enthronement. When the Son of Man comes in the throne and is on the throne of his glory, he calls it in the day of the regeneration, in the palingenesia, in the new genesis, in the new creation, at the consummation of the new creation. So he's talking about regeneration there as a universal phenomena throughout all of creation. But then we see it again in Titus. Three, five, it is not according to deeds of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the lutro bath, L-O-U-T-R-O-U, bath, washing, whatever you want to call it, I call it a bath, of palingenesia, individual 
act of regeneration. Like the theory in biogenetics that the development of an individual organism in the embryonic sense to the point of its life, so as that represents the entirety of the species, so your individual awakening by God to faith and being born from above is an individual instantiation of the universal regeneration that's inevitable and yet to be manifested. He does that one by one. He does it one by one. And physical death doesn't stop him from still doing it one by one. That's putting way too much credit on death. Death gets way too much press. Way too much emphasis. Way too much attention. I like what the Bible says about it. Hey, death, where's your sting? That's perspective. So it's not on the basis of deeds that we've done in conformity to a divine standard even. It is not on the basis of deeds that we have done according to a traditional human standard or according to an irrational ideology like we have flying around on the left and the right today. You go far enough to the right and far enough to the left, you end up at the bottom of the same circle. Wasteland. So, it isn't by doing deeds according to a traditional human standard, religious standard, the dictates of a collective human consciousness or cultural conscience, but according to pure mercy. It is according to pure mercy that God saved us. Man, if that doesn't reduce you down to humility, nothing else will. And what mercy is this? What mercy is this? This is the mercy that God has shown to all in the Christ event. I said, has shown to all. He shut up all in disobedience to show mercy to all, which isn't a future fact, but a fact in the cross of Jesus Christ. When did God show mercy to all? In Christ's death. When will he manifest that mercy to all? In Christ's parousia, in his arrival, in his coming to stay, in his transfiguration of the present universe. When are all human beings in Christ? Now. When will it be manifested that they are all in Christ? Then, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory. And individually, when we are awakened to the faith, listen carefully, when we are awakened to the faith that it was not our faith that saved us, but the faithfulness of one righteous one, Jesus Christ the righteous, who died the righteous one, for all the unrighteous ones, in order to bring us, all the unrighteous ones, to God. 1 Peter 3.18. Now, don't think you got it because you heard it today. My dear friend Taylor Tronzo texted me once in a while, and he said he listened to tape number 76, Hope he doesn't get mad at me. A better call Paul four times. And he said on the fourth, he started to catch up to what I was saying in the message. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's got, there's layers of apprehension of this message. There's layers when you comprehend it. You don't hear it the first time. The second, third, fourth time, he began to understand what God meant when he justifies the ungodly. And it was such an edifying, wonderful little epistle his his text his uh, emails is that what you call them eschatological mails whatever are like little epistles now the point that i'm making today is the mercy that saves us is the mercy that god has shown to all in the christ event it is universal mercy that is instantiated or an instance of it is made we'll say In each individual's case, either during one's life 
or at one's death, it occurs. The individual instantiation or instance of regeneration is a representation of the universal recapitulation in Christ by a concrete, tangible example. You are a concrete, tangible example of the universal restoration. So Paul in Galatians 2.20, I was crucified with Christ is an individual testimony of the reality that the old Adam in toto was crucified in Christ's death. According to, or better, kata, K-A-T-A in the Greek, on the basis of his mercy, God saved us. And this is the mercy that he shows, or... You've got to play with tenses here if you're going to see from God's viewpoint, has shown to all. This universal mercy is instantiated, I-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-A-T-E-D, made an instance of or manifested in an individual and particular personal case by each act of regeneration which occurs by the Holy Spirit's power, who is generously poured out on us, Titus goes on to say, or Paul in Titus and Titus 3.5. Generously poured out on us refers to the fact that in Joel 2.28, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. That's generous. So as a part of the fact that God pours out his spirit on all flesh, he's poured out his spirit on your flesh to awaken you to the faith that you have been rectified by the faithfulness of another, Jesus Christ. Faith in the gospel is not faith that you were justified by your faith. It's faith that you were justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ unto the extent of death by crucifixion. That's why the Bible can bluntly say, and I call it a blood groove. There's a blood groove like a sword, a samurai sword or another kind of blade has a groove in the center. It's called a blood groove. It's where the blood of the enemy drains out of, off the sword. There's a blood groove all the way from Genesis through Revelation. And it culminates in Colossians where it says, God has made peace by the blood of his son's cross in order to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth by it, the cross. That's why I call it instaration. Sorry to multiply long words. Instaration, which is the cross, staros. I have staros eyes. So then, according to on the basis of his mercy, God saved us. And this is the mercy that he's shown to all. This universal mercy then is manifested in every individual and particular person's case in each act of regeneration, which occurs by the Holy Spirit, who is generously poured out on all the human race and on us individually. This generous outpouring speaks of the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh, Joel 2.28, to justify. Once you were this kind of person, this kind of person, this kind of person, the categories don't matter in Adam. But now you are justified by the command of Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, justified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit justified Jesus when he raised him from the dead because no person alive can be justified. So the dead Jesus who had, obedient, who had become obedient to death was justified by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians six eleven justifies all human beings because he justified Jesus who represents all human beings. You say, what are you doing today, preacher? Preaching the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. So, 
What does the Holy Spirit do? He awakens us in Ephesians 5.14. Awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead, you deadheads, and Christ will shine on you. It doesn't say Christ will save you. It says the Christ who has saved you will shine on you. Wake up! And Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5.14. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, he makes us alive and gifts us with faith. And it's the faith that believes that the faithfulness of Christ has saved us. And leads us into a participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. As Paul said in an instantiation of that, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is called, when he brings us into a participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God, that's called the obedience of faith, which all the nations are going to be brought to, and which Paul preached the gospel in all the nations to bring about the obedience of faith, or the participation of faithfulness. So every divine act, and please listen, this is the final stage here. I'm in the regeneration stage. I started with remembrance. I moved to recapitulation. Now I'm moving to regeneration. Every divine act of regeneration is an instantiation of the universal instauration. Now there's a theology class for you. I know, it's Sunday morning. We're not supposed to think on Sunday. We're supposed to go to church and listen to a homily that we don't pay attention to, then go get lots of good food at Eaton Park. Now, not here, might not be popular, might not not be the thing that stimulates you to want to have hot dogs, but it's every divine act of regeneration where God brings you into Christ by an act of birth, new birth, it's an instance of of the universal instauration by which God liberates and transforms all of created reality in all of its times and spaces through the peace that was made by the blood of the cross of the son of God's love. That's a big gulp from Colossians 1:12 all the way to 20. That's why in one place we have Jesus referring to the the regeneration. In the regeneration, the universal regeneration, you guys, you 12, are going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. A metaphorical statement for their placement near the Messiah in the universal restoration. The 12 tribes of Israel then will be all of humanity. So in that place in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus refers to it as a universal phenomenon, palingenesia, a new genesis, a new creation of everything, all things, heaven and earth. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And then in the end, God makes the heavens and the earth anew, recapitulating them under the headship of Christ, minus sin, minus corruption, minus death, minus mortality, minus hate, minus divisiveness, minus factiousness, minus self-righteousness, minus pseudo-piety, minus religion, as it's understood by the pseudo-piety of people. Which far excels the imaginings of John Lennon. Infinitely excels the limited imagination of Karl Marx, who had one feature that he missed in his philosophy, resurrection, bodily resurrection, and which, of course, resulted in the death of hundreds of millions of people and is undermining the present freedoms that we enjoy in America today, which is why I say God's graciously allowed this nation freedom for a season. This season had a beginning. The season has an end. And so you better look to the kingdom of God where the freedom that Christ freed us for is found and is forever. We don't have a continuing city here. Be careful of the hidden idolatry in the American psyche. 
The United States of America is not the equivalent of the kingdom of God on earth. That idea is not only unrealistic, but blasphemous, idolatrous, and an attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. There goes every listener from the Bible Belt down from this message. Just kidding. Just kidding, you guys in Mississippi and Tennessee and Florida and other southern states. Let me say it this way, and I'll close pretty soon. Every act of regeneration in which a person sees the kingdom of God, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So says the religious master teacher, the professor emeritus of the University of Jerusalem. Does that mean I must go back into my mother's womb and go through an embryonic development stage to the point of birth again? (laughs) Jesus is going, you're a master teacher. But the idea is right. What did you have to do with your being in your mother's womb? Let me think it through. I'm not a master teacher. I'm not a professor emeritus. I'm just a dumb, stump-jumping, syrup-sucking Vermont preacher that landed in Pittsburgh, New Kensington. I don't know, but I'd say I didn't have anything to do with it. My delivery, I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't say, okay, you can deliver me now. This last kick means... Let me go. And just to make sure that I knew it wasn't my will, the first thing the doctor did in 1951 was slap you right on the rear end. Just to make sure you know this wasn't your own will, bam! Oh, okay, wow, what a wonderful world to be born into. And then you're born again, and you don't get everything handed to you, and you wonder what's going on here. You face opposition immediately. You say, I was born the first time into a time of adversity, and now I'm born the second time into a time of adversity. Aren't I supposed to just float into heaven on flowery clouds of ease? No, through much tribulation, you'll enter the kingdom. So, every act of regeneration is an individual action called the bath of regeneration, and the Holy Spirit gives you that bath. You don't take it. It's given to you. It's performed by God in the generative and renewing power of the Holy Spirit. Every act of regeneration by which a person sees for the first time the kingdom of God, John 3, 3, is an entirely gracious, divine action and an individual representation of the universal recapitulation in which all things will be brought under the headship of Christ. You've been brought under the headship of Christ through regeneration, and justification is a change of allegiance. Now your allegiance is to the one who liberated you from death and sin, not to sin and death. So therefore, stop being slaves of sin and start to be slaves of the righteousness that's in Christ, as Romans 6 will teach. So then, it's all an individual representation of the recap of all things in heavens and earth as the miracle of God's grace. The universal recapitulation is a miracle of God's grace and power in Jesus, God's Messiah, the Savior of the world. So let me close with this and turn with me to James. 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 Chapter 1. James. Jim just woke up in the booth. That's what I call Jim. But first, remember John 3, 3, unless a man be born again, unless a person be born again, he or she cannot see the kingdom of God. What did John the Baptist say? And these should be juxtaposed. These should be brought right up against each other in John three twenty seven, 
John, in response to some of the opponents around him, said this. A person can receive nothing unless it comes to them by heaven, as a gift of heaven. No one can receive a single thing unless it is given to him from heaven, John 3.27. What happens when you juxtapose or put up against each other, John 3.3 and John 3.27? Unless a person be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God, and a, a person cannot receive a single thing unless it's given to him. What's given to him then is the new birth. It's enacted. By God. Look at James 1. I've translated it from the original Greek text with a little bit of expansion, Targumic expansion. James 1.17. Every beneficent action or every generous act, we could say. And let's give an example. Like, the, like God's giving of his own son. How's that for a benevolent act? Every benevolent action beneficent action how about the pouring out of the spirit on all flesh as a divine benevolent action and every perfect gift the word dorema is used here dorema which is the same word paul uses for the gift of righteousness in romans 5:16 where he gets to the heart of the heart of the matter so every beneficent action and every perfect gift, like regeneration, like the gift of participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God. That's what I would say. Every perfect gift does what? Comes down from the Father of lights. That's the luminaries. The planetary luminaries is what he's talking about. What we see in the planetary luminaries, from our perspective, changes of position. We also see eclipses. We see Changes of the magnitude of the light that each planet emits. But with God, there's no changes in the magnitude of light. There's no changes caused by shadows crossing across him. In other words, he's nothing like the creation. He is entirely other than the creation. And so he has a mind that's other, uh, totally other than us. We have to be born from above to even get the perspective of God and see the kingdom of God. So every beneficent action... And every perfect gift, that's a gift with no strings attached. It's an unconditional gift is what he means. Comes down from the father of the lights or luminaries with whom there is no periodic variation. Parallax like in the planets. Or shadow caused by eclipses. Not with God who is light. He is entirely other than his created luminaries in other words. Look at verse 18. According to his will. Whose will? His will. It doesn't say according to your will to believe. It doesn't say according to your will to confess. It does not say according to your will to submit to water baptism, to go down an aisle, to invite Jesus into your heart, to invite Jesus into your life. It doesn't say that. It says, according to his will, that's his resolved determination, as it's also written in Ephesians 1.11. He brought us into being. He brought us into being. Here he's saying, literally it means he gave us birth. He gave birth to us by his own will. Why am I shouting? I don't know. According to, because I'm getting right to the citadel of arrogance. It's according, my will's got to be in there somewhere. Even if it's the will to believe, the will to confess, the will to call on him, the will to do this and the will to do that. No, it is according to his own will, not according to his own will in agreement with your will. How about in cooperation with my will? No! You started off so calmly. Now, according to his will, he brought us into being. You know what that means in the context? He brought us into being as a new creation. 
That's not talking about our first birth. That's talking about our birth from above. So that we would be, and it doesn't say kind of, it says some. So we would be some first fruits. Not all the first fruits. We would be some first fruits of his creation. Put in the word new there because that's what he means. The new creation. We are some first fruits of his new creation. That is, we are the first indications, the robin in spring, which I like to use. We are the first indications of a universal recapitulation by being brought into being as a new creation by an act of God, the new birth, regeneration. Peter agrees. James agrees. Peter agrees. Look at 1 Peter 1.3 or write it down. I'm going to move on to the end now. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Father? What would you define the Father as? What gives him his identity? Why do, what do we call him? We call him the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 agrees totally with Ephesians 1.3 because Peter and Paul are on the same page, just like me and Fleming. On this one, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who as a result of his great mercy. What? You're bringing that up again? According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. What? Yes, he has caused us to be born again. How dare he invade my will? Why shouldn't he? He created you. He made you. He saved you. He reconciled you. He can invade your will any old damn time he wants to. He can invade your space. Don't say, God is a gentleman. He won't interfere with my life. Baloney. See the restraint. It's amazing. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who as a result of his great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the second birth is into Christ as the first birth was into Adam. The second birth is a benevolent action of God that invades our human will. It's a birth brought about from above by God. It leads us to a living hope, an animating expectation of the reconciliation of all things manifested. Each birth from above enacted and produced by God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the way he creates new lights and becomes the father of lights You are light in the world. Once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord because God made you. It wasn't like, Father, I permit you to make me. I'm a non-existent lack of something. You have permission to make me something. God calls into existence things that don't even exist and God calls out of the dead into life. That's what God does. That's salvation. The community that we are as Tetelestai are people who enjoy, rejoice, and have peace in this act of God that's already been enacted. It's a joyful fellowship in the finished, completed reconciliation with a living expectation that it'll all be universal. That's our, it's not, it's, it's so far from religion now that it's not even described that, as that. It isn't a religious hope. It isn't a pious thing. It's life. It's living. It's a new creation. It's free from the damnable restraints of religiosities and idolatries. Each birth from above is an instantiation of the recapitulation of all things or the gathering of all things under the headship of God's Messiah, Jesus. So in true closing, in the beating heart of Romans, which sends blood pumping throughout 
all of Romans. And throughout all of Romans and all of Paul's letters, this light is shed abroad. It has no barriers. It is the light of the doctrine of the recapitulation of all humanity, which is rooted in the blood of Jesus Christ's cross. It includes the instauration or the transformation by crucifixion and resurrection of all humanity once in Adam, once controlled and complicit with sin, once under the boot heels of death, once God's enemies, now in Christ, now dead to sin, now emancipated from the fear of death, now reconciled, now saved by the God who justifies the ungodly because Jesus, his son, the righteous one, in Romans 1.17, died for all the unrighteous, all of us, in all of our times, to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 compared with Romans 4.25 through 5.2. Amen. Over and out. See some of you Wednesday. Have a good day.